So I know a lot of you guys, I'm, Gary Peterson and I were just reminiscing about our last 12 years of hanging out, and uh, it's always fun to come to see you guys and give lectures. I'm, I'm just glad Dr. Bishop gave you this big lovey-dovey cheerleader talk, because now I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> so, and you always, it's always good coming three time zones, because without enough caffeine and my glasses on, I wouldn't be able to function anyway. So. With that, I'm going to give you two lectures in one. I, I did both of these at the Academy, and uh, <clears throat> one is about immunomodulators, which is the topic, and the second is about strategies in chemo prevention, which a lot of us don't really talk about because, for one, there's no label, for two, there are no drugs that are approved for it, and for three, it's a subject that doesn't get enough discussion because we're so fixated on treatment, we forget about prevention. So we'll, we'll kind of go down that path and... See where you go. Now, this is me in my groom's outfit. I'm not a genie. There's no three wishes. Anyone who's been to an Indian wedding know that it's uh, anywhere from three hours to three days, and we consolidated ours into an hour, which was good. A bunch of my uh, colleagues who've been to Indian weddings, too, they're all talking about the elephants. So I'm like, no, they, just save the elephant for the one in the room. That's, uh, that's it. Okay. And as all of you know, too, I'll always be from Wisconsin, no matter what. That uh, You can take me out of Wisconsin, but you can't take Wisconsin out of me, so... Needless to say, if you, you won't hear an accent, though. That, I don't think I have a Wisconsin accent. If, uh, if there is one, then we'll, we'll dedicate And I, I still dedicate every lecture to my dad. I lost him last year in, uh, to leukemia, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, cancer strategies as well, and I'll show you where, where skin cancer affects everybody, not just uh, transplant patients, but those who have different immunosuppressive diseases. So it was kind of an inspiration to, to write this one. Okay. Now, everyone has heard about cathelicidins, right? Cathelicidins are not cytokines. They don't circulate. They're not interleukins. They're not something that we recruit unless there is a reason, okay? So what are cathelicidins? Cathelicidins are part of an antimicrobial peptide family. When you cut yourself, for example, or when you have some injury or there's some sort of pro inflammatory process, cathelicidins are brought to the arena, okay? They serve three main features or three important functions, if you will, aside from being directly antimicrobial, antiviral, antifungal. They work on releasing appropriate cytokines, they bring in vasculature, and they create re-epithelialization, okay? So why is that important? Well, again, you cut yourself, you form granulation tissue, you bleed, right? And then you bring in inflammatory mediators, which create purulence. They also have antimicrobial effects, okay? So when cathelicines are working correctly, they do their job and they go back and get metabolized and broken down. When they're not working correctly, which is like having your foot on the gas pedal, that's when we start to see inflammatory conditions out of whack. Things like rosacea, acne, psoriasis, eczema, they all have fundamental issues with cathelicine patholog pathogenesis, if you will, but they also have therapies that are directed against controlling cathelicidins. Okay? Now, LL37 is what active human cathelicidin is. And if you ever hear a bunch of other numbers, they're usually breakdown products. There's a protein called HCAP, which is about 18 amino acids long. It's broken down and cleaved where you get active LL37. From there, the stratum corneum has an enzyme. It's called calocrine 5, which activates LL37 and makes it do its job. Okay? So it's important to keep all those numbers straight as well as those terms straight because if you use the example of rosacea where we don't have an epidermal component, Stratum corneum does have the enzyme that activates catalysins that make the inflammation process happen. Okay? So it's always important to remember where is the activity of inflammation, which level, but also is there crosstalk between all the levels that's making everything develop. And as we're learning, you know, vitamin D has some, some influence on LO37. 
There's also a, a response element on the LL37 gene, which is where vitamin D can bind and slows down their activity, which is what we see in psoriasis and one of the reasons we get some of the benefits of vitamin D, where you can create a differentiation change. You can also see activity of toll-like receptor 2, which we hear a lot about with acne, as the way it binds P-acnes as well as gets suppressed by retinoids. And then, of course, you see that linkage to vitamin D also. And then what's important also about LL37 is the chemo attractions, right? It brings in neutrophils, brings in appropriate lymphocytes, makes the process continue while it's still doing its job, okay? And then mast cells, which are part of the Th2 side of immunology, not the cellular side, but the antibody side, is where we see also some chemo attractants that bring in LL37 also. So there's a lot of crosstalk and a lot of communication between these cell lines as well as recruitment of the appropriate cell lines for a process. But again, that's indicative of each disease state that we're dealing with, okay? Now, what makes it more interesting is the way that we look at a way a wound heals, right? Keratinocytes, they surround a wound. All of it is creating a, an antigen presentation because you remember keratinocytes are also dendritic cells, right? They work the same way as macrophages. They secrete interleukin-1, they present antigen, and they have an inflammatory role, not just a structural role. But there's also, again, that expression of CD14 as well as other toll-like receptor 2 genes. And then, of course, the way that vitamin D gets metabolized is the way that we see differentiation change and restoration of appropriate differentiation also. Okay? That's where, when we think about vitamin D and patients saying, well, I'm vitamin D deficient or I should be taking oral vitamin D, it doesn't get to the source the way that topical vitamin D does. Okay? Because vitamin D, remember, it's fat-soluble, it gets broken down a different way, versus topical vitamin D penetrates, but it doesn't permeate, which is why you don't see issues with hypercalciuria or any problems with your renal function when you use topical vitamin D. So this is a little diagram. If you follow along, this is transforming growth factor beta. This is toll-like receptor 2. This is the converting enzymes in the, in the uh, kidney that makes inactive vitamin D to active, and this is the... Uh, vitamin D receptor that, again, promotes cathelicidin, acts on these two promoters, CD14 and the toll-like receptor 2 gene, and then creates that cycle of how we repair injuries, okay? Now, nobody gets to go to the bar until they memorize this, so needless to say. Okay, and then the last thing we'll, we'll talk about again is the relationship between the two. Toll-like receptor 4 doesn't get a lot of, act, a lot of discussion. It's a very important toll-like receptor for antibiotics, as well as a, looking for different bacterial antigens. But again, it's also expressed in, in keratinocytes the same way toll-like receptor 2 is. It has very important protective roles, just like, vitamin, just like toll-like receptor 2 does with acne, looking for, for P-acnes. And then, of course, the way that keratinocytes metabolize and recruit other interleukins, like interleukin-8, is the way they bring neutrophils to the same inflammation arena. Okay? So the point of all this is the way that we repair wounds, but also in, a, in abnormal states of toll-like receptor expression or cathelicidin overuse, this is where we tend to run into problems. Okay? So all of these different mediators are targets for immunomodulators. Okay? So think about vitamin D again. We have vitamin D analogs in the form of calcitriol and calcipitriene, which is synthetic, right? <clears throat> they, again, they work on transcription. They work on de decreasing these important in interleukins, if you will, again, especially interferon gamma. And then, of course, it works on these two important neurotransmitters, which we see not only in, in uh, tacrolimus and permicrolimus biology, but also in NF-kappa-beta, which is important in the way steroids work. Okay, so if you think about this global concept of immunomodulators, why do we use them, right? We use them as a, as a marathon 
you know, drug, if you will, when we're controlling an inflammatory disease, while steroids are ten tending to be our sprint. Okay? Now, calcitriol, like I said, is synthetic. It binds receptors the same way as natural calcitriol does, but its exertion on the receptor is 100 times less. Okay? So even though it binds the same way, what it does when it's bound is not as efficient as the, as the, as the natural vitamin D is. Okay? Now, where one of the potential uses is in morphia, right? We hear a lot about it with psoriasis as its epidermal change, but morphia, if you remember, is a fibroblast problem. It's a dermal stroma disease. So why would we see its benefit there? Well, again, there, it was studied in a way that if you think of morphia, it's a long-term change or a structural change that you're trying to reintroduce as well as having a low level of inflammation that's creating the problem in the first place. And this was all, uh, you know, mainly from case reports, looking at, you know, topical calcipotrine, looking at it under occlusion. They just did 12 patients looking at isolated lesions. And there were some improvements, but again, you have to remember, this is a disease that's a, a long-term, and everyone's subjective index of improvement is going to vary, right? But it does give us an option in a disease state where we didn't have anything, just thinking about the way we apply the mechanism of action towards its endpoint, Okay. But oral vitamin D, on the other hand, like I said, it doesn't get to the source. Therefore, it's not going to absorb the same way, and it's not going to deliver to the active dermal stroma where you actually have the, the similar problem that you would see other, like in systemic scleroderma. Okay? And in this study, they actually looked at it in kids, six to seven patients. They looked at it for eight months. You know, it, was, it really wasn't that big of a, dif of a difference. Right? So again, it just goes back to counseling. When patients say, well, I need vitamin D, it's not the same way as we think of Looking at the systemic benefits, there's actually more of the, the, of the benefits from the topical delivery because it gets to the source of the action. Okay. Now, hydratinitis suppurativa is probably one of the most frustrating conditions we have, right? Not very many good topical, definitely not very good systemics. You know, isotretinoin is, is, is still one of the standards, but again, it's off-label. It's hard to get through eye pledge. So we're looking at different retinoids and the way they work as well as their safety profiles because a lot of these long-term retinoids that we use for, for different type of cancers as well as psoriasis and a couple other conditions, they don't have the same restrictions or issues like isotretinoin does. Okay? One of those is allotretinoin, which we use for mycosis fungoides and cutaceous T-cell lymphoma, et cetera. But compared to acetretin, there was a shorter washout. Women still need to be on contraception during the entire time. But overall, the quality of life and the issues of side effect profile was a little bit better tolerated. So these are some of the areas where we can experiment and say what, what class of retinoids as well as what type of retinoid can be used for this long-term condition. Okay. And we'll hear a lot about infliximab and Tanner said a lot of other drugs for hydratinitis separativa, but oral therapy is still one of the mainstays as well as, again, getting the, getting the drug to the source of the, of the action where, where hydratinitis is happening. Now, one of the exciting new drugs that's coming out is a premolast. And a premolast works significantly different than everything we have because it works more upstream in phosphodiesterase inhibition and where that affects all of the inflammatory cascade compared to all the other targets, if you will. And like and you take the TNF inhibitors, for example, they work on receptors, they work a little bit differently versus the premolast is working much more upstream on the process. Okay? Now, if you remember thalidomide and why it was taken off the market, it was sad because it was causing very severe birth defects, but thalidomide was a really good drug. I mean, it had really good impact on lupus. It had a lot of effects on different collagen vascular disease, and it probably could have been you know, developed for psoriasis as well as some, several other conditions had it not been taken away from us. But if you look at the way it works, 
again, it has a lot of potential benefit on good dermal stroma inflammation. And again, discoid lupus and lichen planus both have had uh, publications, you know, directed with the premolas as far as case reports. And I think we'll see many more indications, you know, once the premolas hits the market. And I use, again, sarcoid and morphia as two examples of conditions we don't have good therapies for. Right? And we can use steroids all day, but we know what steroids are going to do. We need something that's going to be, again, I use the term marathon because something has to be done to maintain as well as put out the, the immediate inflammation of all these. And this was a case report published on cutaneous lichen planus. They looked at just 10 patients, 20 milligrams twice a day, looked at 12 weeks, gave them a holiday, and then looked at grades. And again, 30% you know, patients experience two grade improvement is a big deal for something that is, is very difficult to treat like lichen planus. Now, again, we can use steroids to put out bursts. We can use steroids as you know, low-level maintenance. We can taper. But why put patients through the side effects and the long-term risk when we have other options that we can manage in a similar fashion? right? And that's where I think this, this will give us some of that potential utility. Same thing with discoid lupus, you know, how difficult it is to treat. Again, it's blocking the whole inflammatory cascade that's mediated by the Th1 side. The result of that is Again, controlling the inflammation in the dermal stroma, reducing atrophy, reducing all of the periphery of, of where lupus has its downside. And if you think about where discoid lupus hits, it's on the face, it's on the scalp, it's on areas that are difficult to deliver topical therapies, and we also have to worry about the risks of where those topical therapies will have some negative impact. So again, working from within is going to give a lot of potential. Okay. Now, <clears throat> Cellcept or mycophenolate is a, is a drug that I was groomed with when I did my residency. It's one of the better immunomodulators out there. The problem with it is it's expensive and it's difficult to get covered by insurance companies because they don't want to pay for it. But it does a, a lot of benefit for the long run. I mean, we see a lot of use in bullous diseases, you know, pyodermic gangrenosum, where it works really well. And again, a lot of conditions where steroids would have their benefit, this is where we can keep patients on safely as well as, you know, kind of watch how many times they need something in between. And if you think about the concept of these drugs as not just steroid sparing, but also directly working on lymphocytes, which are primarily the, the cell that's working on those different disease states, that's where we can have more targeted and more efficient therapy. So the way to manage it, again, you just look at different levels. If you're on two grams a day or higher, just kind of want to watch the, the, metal, uh, the metabolic breakdown products. And then you, you start to look at three grams a day, you know, kind of turning it up and down like a radio. Okay. But it's a pretty easy drug to manage, and it's pretty safe to keep people on, not just for transplants, but, again, for a lot of these different inflammatory conditions. One of those being urticaria, right, which is, again, a very difficult you know, disease to treat. I mean, there are a lot of new drugs coming out for chronic urticaria, but Cellcept or a, a microphenolate mofetil is one of those drugs that we can use safely and keep people out of remission. Okay, because again, once chronic urticaria patients flare, they really have a heck of a time. And that's where we, we see, you know, little case reports with seven patients. But again, this gives us a template of how to dose it as well as what, the, what to expect and what, and what we can expect with patients. And then this was a, just a case report with, with morphia. They did six patients, you know, juvenile scleroderma, looking at methotrexate, looking at a lot of different drugs that didn't work. They didn't really have a good protocol, but everything tended to respond, whether, again, be one gram anywhere to three grams, right? Obviously, in kids, you're going to be a little bit more, more careful with the dosage, but again, this is where we have the upside without a lot of potential um, adverse events down the road. You'll probably hear more about you know, some of the issues with TNF inhibitors as well as some of the other biologics for psoriasis. You know, they, they get some isolated case reports of granulomatous disease. It's much more the exception than it is the norm. But again, they, there is something we have to watch out for, and these can be potentially very dose-limiting. 
Now, when you think about sarcoid, think about granulomas, right? Granulomas are part of an inflammatory process that's it's walled off. And if you look at a granuloma under the microscope, it's very difficult to penetrate, which is why, again, working from within is very important to reduce their, their potential for creating more aggressive inflammation. And again, sarcoid is one of those diseases in the skin that, <clears throat> under the wrong conditions, can actually develop very quickly. And that's where, again, some of these case reports of, of uh, TNF inhibitors inducing sarcoid is just something we have to watch out for. Now, Again, if you, if you think about the paradox of that, we use TNF inhibitors to treat sarcoid, and that's where this study was done, mainly on ocular sarcoid, but some of the cutaneous benefits can be easily translated from what you see in the eyes. They looked at patients with six months. They used a tanercept 25 milligrams twice weekly after using methotrexate, which was either kept on or, or weaned off. And in a different study, they actually had some patients with pulmonary sarcoid who didn't do as well. So again, these are things we'll hear case reports about, but don't expect the companies to put these studies together. These are coming from, from good research as well as you know, patient uh, case reports that we just have to get out in the literature so we can all learn from them. Now again, not all of us are gonna see polyuria arteritis nodosa in our career, but if you do, it's one of the worst things you'll see. These painful ulcers, they don't heal. The inflammation runs very quickly, affects the kidneys just like it does the skin, and it can really lead to a lot of severe problems. So this is where biologic therapy has become a mainstay. You see a lot of uh, the different ones that have been used up through here. A lot of it is, is safe because we use it for the long run, but at the same time, this is a very difficult condition to treat, even though, again, it's something that we won't see very often. And again, you know, they, there's again talk about biologics actually inducing vasculitic syndromes. These are few and far between. You know, just very benign leukocytoclastic vasculitis can happen with almost any drug, and a lot of different presentations can show up. But again, this is where we have to biopsy early and often, and we have to prove our diagnosis before we start blaming therapies. Okay, and then just real quickly about infliximab, which is falling out of favor compared to, you know, again, more... I'm sorry, more advanced delivery systems like subcutaneous, you know, deliveries. We don't really use infusions much anymore, especially after Remicade was taken, taken back by the company. But also we see its benefits against the, the interferons that are promoting, you know, the activity of those, of those CD4 cells. So three doses through here created a significant reduction in the serum calcium, which was, they were using as a measure of active sarcoid. And again, this is something that you know, you think about you know, the role of steroids, the role of other topical therapies, they won't get to the source of the granuloma or, the, or penetrate through that wall of inflammation the way that the systemic therapies will. And again, going back to hydradenitis separativa, like I mentioned, you know, I, I'm a big fan of using Enbrel or Etanercept for hydradenitis. I think it works really well. There was a lot of case report uh, discussion about infliximab early on, and I think Etanercept has taken all of that business away from infliximab just because it's safer and easier to manage. But the phase two studies actually showed some pretty good you know, resolution in some, not in others in this study, wasn't really much improvement. Three of the patients in this phase two study at 50 milligrams a week, they actually did pretty well, but that's, you know, 24 weeks is a long time, right? But again, that's what patients have to expect, that this is not an overnight cure, this is a six month, you know, treatment that they have to buy into. Now, cumin is a, uh, is a spice we use in Indian food. I don't know how much of you have actually uh, experimented with cumin. It kind of smells a little funny, but it does work well as an immunomodulator. We're seeing a lot of use in diabetes and uh, in a lot of uh, conditions like multiple sclerosis, areas where you, you don't see you know, typical or conventional therapies working. And lichen planus is, is, a, is a condition where we actually have seen you know, some benefits of cumin, as well as, you know, some potential safety profiles. But again, it's because of the activities against these cytokines and immunomod or these targets 
that we see those benefits for. Now, again, it's hard to measure because it's more, you know, you could consider it holistic or, you know, another branch of therapy, if you will, but at the same time, we do see those benefits as, as adjuncts. And if you, you see a lot of cancer patients, they walk around with cumin and turmeric on their lips, and it actually does help with, with some of the side effects of chemotherapy as well. So just real quick about retinoids, and we'll, we'll get into the next subject. So we, we're, we were kind of groomed on retinoids, you know, as being the drugs for comedones, right? This is no secret. But retinoids are very potent long-term immunomodulators that have benefits against this neurotransmitter here, AP1, which, if you see the binding, it tends to break down through here, which re results in the reduction of cytokines being produced. Okay, but these results are not immediate, they're not very potent, and they take time to really kick in. But again, where the utility is, is broad. Okay, and you know, you think about a topical retinoid, it has, you know, some pretty limiting side effects if you think about dryness and, and potential irritation and everything else. But at the same time, the use of systemic retinoids is very broad. And this was one of the uh, review articles that I, that I found that actually was very helpful in thinking about where retinoids can have their utility. And again, if you think about why we use systemic immunomodulators, it's because we're trying to not only reduce the role of steroids, but we're trying to target the exact or the more specific markers of inflammation that, we're, that are creating the process. What, what retinoids do for differentiation is very similar to vitamin D in that it creates regulation of a differentiation process that's out of whack. It also redu re reduces cell growth based on the, the dose that's applied in the treatment area. But again, reducing the amount of inflammation is a, is a very strong benefit for the long run. Okay? And that's where some of these, these mechanisms here, the activity against protein kinases, reducing, reducing cyclic AMP, and the way it promotes an inflammatory cascade, these are things that get to the heart of the process, not just treating the symptoms or, or the endpoints. Now, its role on, on, on neutrophils and on the leukotriene side of, of prostaglandins is a little bit less documented, but it still has some benefits through there. We see the you know, the role of Kaposi's sarcoma reduced by allotretinoin. I already mentioned where it fits into hydratinitis separativa. You see some activity against the human, human herpes virus 8, which is important in pitoriasis rosea and some other uh, inflammatory conditions that are low level. But this FOXP3 induction is important in the way that it affects progression to squamous cell. Because squamous cell carcinoma is, again, is, is created by a reduction of inflammation that creates loss of tumor surveillance, loss of antigen presentation, and a lot of that is because of those tumor suppressor cells that are working at a higher level, and FOXP3 is one of those markers that can show how, how much tumor suppressor gene activity there is, and therefore can be linked directly to, to squamous cell carcinoma production. And that's, again, where we see here the target of toll-like receptor 2 as where retinoids will have its best impact, okay? So, again, a lot of these are, are numbers that we may never deal with in the clinic, but at the same time, it shows where the long-term benefits of retinoids can, can impact a process that's it's a little bit more difficult to manage, and, again, thinking more in terms of prevention rather than just treatment. So, where we use retinoids as immunomodulators can be very broad. And again, the, this point here, the upregulation of antigen presentation is very important to reinstituting an immune process that's, that's probably been defunct. And where that's important is, again, in transplant patients, patients who are on immunosuppressive therapy otherwise. And if you think in terms of local immunosuppression, <clears throat> that's where tumors can grow unregulated. Okay? So if we can reintroduce that, we can recreate a phenomenon of, of, re of uh, restoration of inflammation against tumors so we can catch them early and before they grow 
and in, especially in transplant patients where squamous cell carcinoma is the number one source of mortality for them. Now again, I go back to this role of all of these different cytokines. I mean, these numbers can give you a seizure if you let them. But if you think about increasing in, uh, the role of interferons, interleukin-12 is kind of the global cellular cytokine. It regulates a lot of the other cytokines and the way they're brought into the, the area of, of inflammation. Interleukin-2 is kind of the quarterback of cytokines. It works directly on T helper cells and decides which venue or which avenue that uh, the inflammation cascade is going to go by. And then, of course, T helper cells, they mediate the end process. And if you think about where T helper cell immunity or immune process begins, it either is working on making antibodies or it's promoting a cellular response. And what we need in tumor surveillance and in chemo prevention is more of the Th1 side and less of the Th2 side. So that's where you know, the tumor will actually switch T helper cells to more of a Th2 side so that it can promote their growth. So we need to undo that, that conversion and promote more cellular immunity. Now, acetretin was probably, and probably still is, the mainstay of, of chemo prevention as far as what's been used. It's, it's been dosed at several different, uh, different levels. 10 and 25 are probably the numbers that you want to keep because I don't think 17 and a half and 22 and a half are much available on the market anymore. But the way we used to do it you know, was start at 10 milligrams a day, work your way up to 25. If you have to go every other day to balance side effects, I think that's very easy. Most of the patients that you're, you're treating are going to get their lipids checked and their liver checked anyway for probably other health problems. But more important thing you want to watch for is their cholesterol, their liver adjustment, and maybe a CBC every once in a while. But if you think about who are the candidates for chemoprevention, you'll see where the role of retinoids will fit with them for the long term. Because again, once they buy into it, they have to keep going. And, and it's not something that we can think about here's an endpoint of treatment. We have to think, are we going to reduce their squamous cell risk, and are we going to give them the benefits of therapy that they need for the long run? And you know, again, it's not a labeled condition, right? not, not a labeled uh, treatment option. right? There's no controlled clinical trial. There's, there are a few clinical trials out there that have suggested the role of chemo prevention, but we're not seeing anything new in the, in the role of systemic retinoids as far as an indication for, for chemo prevention for squamous cell. Now, Acetretin has been used in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. We're actually seeing some, some benefits of acetretin compared to the other retinoids, mainly based on expense, but also in terms of safety profile because the others may have a little bit more harsh effect on the livers as well, liver panel as well as the lipids. And then, of course, you know, the, the side effect profile that's limiting things like hair loss, the dryness, you know, brittle, you know, dry skin, brittle nails, these are the things that patients just will, will give up on when the dose is not uh, more user-friendly. So I'll switch over to... Thinking about um, non-melanoma skin cancer, just real quickly, and I'll show you where some of that fits. This is uh, my trip to uh, South Africa. And tonight we're flying to Santiago, Chile, and we're going to try to get down to Cape Horn to see the other part of the end of the world. And uh, I don't know, we'll, uh, maybe I'll just stay down there. I feel like I can get a good job. We'll see. Okay, I, I, was in, uh, I was in South Africa, and they, they misspelled the Dermatology Congress. They called us demonology. I'm like, we're not demons. <laughs> I what? We haven't even done anything. It was like the first day, and they're already labeling us as demons. So this was a, <clears throat> this was a session I did there. And actually, it's, you, you think about in, in different parts of the world how quickly squamous cell can grow. And again, not, not just thinking about transplant patients, but think about anybody who's immunosuppressed, right? people with diabetes, with CLL, people on biologics, people on any kind of immunosuppressed therapy, and even just getting old. Right? Immune senescence is part of aging. right? And with that is the potential to develop skin cancer very quickly. 
right? And as it grows, you can get another one with it, and there's a lot of potential for UV, UV photodamaged skin, obviously, but also just potential for areas of squamous cell going very quickly, okay? And like I mentioned before, in transplant patients, it is the number one source of, of them dying, which is sad, because it is something we can prevent. And, you know, the, the real question, too, is, is one cancer going to beget another, right? Is, is one visceral cancer going to lead to you know, potential for, for skin cancer. And you see here the relative risk of patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, with colon cancer, with breast cancer, prostate cancer, they all had elevated risks. Here's the, the other indices here. But again, this is where we see a lot of potential for the, the use of these therapies where patients have not had that, that kind of prevention strategy before. And if you think about, you know, renal transplants, for example, think about all those patients who are walking and talking, they're all very healthy. They're not managed by transplant surgeons anymore. They're managed by nephrologists. These are patients who need regular skin cancer screening. They need to be on protocols for, for topical and systemic chemo prevention, but also thinking about their age because these are not 70-year-olds anymore. These are 30 and 40-year-olds who are at high risk of developing skin cancer you know, very quickly in their, in their age, and they, can, and they can grow very fast. And that's where we really have to pay attention to who's getting screened and how often are they getting screened. And unfortunately, with males, they're a little bit more at risk. They, they get uh, skin cancer on their scalp that gets undiagnosed. They get it behind their ears. They get areas on their lips and on their face that grow very quickly, and they can metastasize very quickly. So we really have to pay attention to when they're getting screened and how often. And this was a, just an epidemiologic study that you know, two dermatologists took on. They did 100 patients, looked at their age of transplant, and looking at the lesion type, but also the duration of the transplant, how often were they being screened, and how aggressive was their immunosuppression. That's where we'll really see some variability, not just in the way that patients are, are at risk, but also what are we doing to intervene with that risk. And here's a, you know, a study done with uh, four patients with skin cancer with liver, liver transplant. One had a squam, six had basal cell, which isn't as closely linked to the whole pathogenesis as squamous cell is. And then you think about their different you know, routines of immunosuppression, 48% were on dual therapy, one was on just tacrolimus, but the higher percentage of those who, were, who developed skin cancer were on more aggressive immunosuppressive regimens. Now that intuitively makes sense, but again, if there's a way to incorporate some chemo prevention strategy in there, we can reduce their risk as well as still give them adequate immunosuppression for their transplant. And again, there's a lot of risk with patients with CLL, with other myeloid cancers. They don't think about that because a lot of them get bone marrow transplants or they're on chemotherapy. We're still not treating them as immunosuppressed and as high risk because a lot of these patients will live with chemotherapy for years. My father had CLL for 14 years and was, was a total warrior when it came to um, you know, being, being treated. The good thing about him is we, we had a little bit darker skin type, so he wasn't as, as high a risk. But you think about patients with CLL, they're walking and talking, and they have good, you know, good immune systems sometimes, but their risk of skin cancer is significantly higher based on studies like this. And again, in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which we know is, is much more aggressive, you know, that's again where we see a lot higher risk of, of patients with um, developing squamous cell. You see their relative risk can be as high as two you know, compared to the average population. Now, again, to the untrained eye or even the trained eye, we don't know where skin cancer begins and AKs end, right? And, and Dr. Marcus is going to give us a, a lecture on, uh, on AKs and, and uh, photodynamic therapy and some of the prevention strategies, I think, tomorrow. But if you look at this marker and where in this whole zone is there transformation, it's very difficult to tell. Right? Even clinically looking at AKs and anything that's hypertrophic, is there a squamous cell that's already in motion and is there something we have to be careful of? And the, the bigger risk is that this whole process 
but you get to all these mutations developing, the p53 tumor suppressor gene and then the RAS oncogene, all of that is rolling downhill in the face of, of immunosuppression because of all the cumulative UV damage, right? And it's this the mutation, the p16, which is where we really want to prevent that last conversion, but it's hard to think of bus stops, right? This is a whole spectrum. It's an investment of photo damage, right? And we use that term precancerous when we talk about AKs with patients, but in reality, there is no precancerous step. It's all one big spectrum leading from normal skin to squamous cell with photo damage, you know, contributing to the whole process. And again, that's where this whole concept of dysregulation of P53, the P16 oncogene conversion, there's the fast ligand, which is very important in the way that lymphocytes kill off tumors and vice versa. When the fast ligand is expressed on a tumor cell, it goes directly after the lymphocytes. And then, of course, a new uh, receptor is called the trail ligand, which is important in terms of direct cellular killing and direct you know, death receptor mediated um, cytotoxicity, which is the caspases, which we call the death enzymes. And again, if you see the homology between these mutations in AKs and squames, it's very parallel. Right? There isn't much difference in the way that you look at it on the molecular level, how an AK converts to squamous cell, but also the way they behave in a very similar process. So you know, where do we put our therapies in? Well, you have sunscreens. You know, we use those as prevention. We have a miquimod, which works on different you know, points in the cascade. We have topical 5-FU, which is more working on an endpoint of you know, redistribution of how epidermal turnover is affected. You have retinoids, again, affecting the differentiation change of the entire process, and then we have screening, right? All of those work hand in hand. Now, who is at risk for, for non-melanoma skin cancer? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Everyone in this room, of course, but also anyone who's been out in the sun for most of their life, right? We've all heard about patients who come in and they say, well, I, I don't go out in the sun. It's like, okay, well, you live in LA, you drive, you don't wear sunblock every minute of the day, so how are you not at, at risk? These are the patients that we know they are at risk because they think if they're just sitting at the beach, they're getting all the sun, but they get the same photo damage exposure walking from the car, sitting next to a window, you know, being anywhere that's outdoors, right? What we also have to be careful of, though, is that especially in the transplant patient, like I mentioned before, that risk of immunosuppression is variable, and then the risk of the HPV um, component you know, of superinfection, if you will, is also a significant role because we're, now we're seeing particles of, H, of HPV 16 and 18 in squamous cell of the head and neck as well as in, in skin cancer. We're also seeing HPV 21 as part of the AK transformation, okay? And we know, again, HPV and UV, you know, UV light, if you will, they're both potent carcinogens, right? They both are promoters of epidermal turnover that's irregular, and they're also targets for where we want to make therapies a little bit more effective in the prevention strategy. And we may see a vaccine you know, for some of these other HPV types. The question becomes, though, who is the candidate for that vaccine, and is it going to really work? And then here we think about where HPV has its role, and E6 and E7 are proteins that are contained on the HPV capsid, which work directly against the apoptosis machinery of our immune system, which is why that it, it can survive in any environment, right? You think about the difference between papillomavirus and herpes virus. Herpes virus is more of a burst, right? It creates ballooning degeneration, ruptures the cells, there's a brisk inflammatory response. HPV doesn't do any of that, it intercalates, into the basal layer, it creates a typical epidermal differentiation, and that's why you see a wart that is visible in healthy skin, right? You don't, you don't have an immune response against HPV because it smolders and it hides away from the immune response. Same thing that's happening in skin cancer, which is why we have to, again, be aggressive 
in terms of chemo prevention. That's where we may see the HPV vaccine in chemo prevention strategies. And like I mentioned before, 16 and 18, we're seeing you know, different, different strains of the, of, of the papillomavirus in, in head and neck cancer. So should we be thinking about switching immunosuppressive therapies? Should we be more in tune to what the transplant patients are on and maybe be a little bit more aggressive in our role as, as screeners as well as making everyone aware of the risk of skin cancer? Well, I think that's a given. But when do we think about adding chemo prevention? That's really up to us to selling it not only to the patient, but also to their managing physician so that everybody's in tune with what the potential upside and downside are. And then again, retinoids are part of that, but there are other strategies that we can incorporate. And again, these are a couple of the trials that were used, that, that we use as markers. I just show you the first, this one and this one, where they looked at 30 milligrams a day, 0.3 milligrams per kilogram a day. But these are patients that were on for years, right? This isn't a, this isn't a six month problem. This isn't a, a one year problem. This is maintenance from there on in. They have to be screened with that, but that's significantly reducing their AK conversion rate as well as reducing their risk of mortality from, from squamous cell. And these are some of the studies that are, have been in motion, or they were. This was last updated in 2011, looking at patients, who, again, with, who have been uh, under, under transplants. But these are uh, acid transplant studies with high-risk patients. Right? Everyone who is not a transplant patient, and that's where I think we'll see some potential utility for acetretin if it, if it comes back to market <clears throat> in a little bit more visible fashion, if you will. Same thing with isotretinoin. I'm, again, this is a hard thing to get through with iPledge, but at the same time, isotretinoin in a low dose or in a strategic dose strategy does work very well as a chemo prevention agent. Now, polypotent leukotomus is not indicated for chemo prevention, but it has very significant impact on dendritic cell processing on the role of UV light and what it does to you know, basically poison the immune system. And it also has a very significant anti-inflammatory activity, which is at that level, it becomes very significant. And if you see what UV, UV light does, you know, induces you know, reactive oxygen species, it creates lipid peroxidation, basically creates cell breakdown overall, decreasing the activity of dendritic cells. All of those effects are undone by the activity of polypotum Leukotomus, okay? So if you think about you know, heliocare as an oral supplement, it's not just sunscreen by mouth. It actually has very significant activity on the immune process that's undone by UV damage. And again, you think about a very easy you know, therapy to take, you know, that's something that patients who are on multiple therapies, it's something they can incorporate very easily. Now, the other big strategy that should be incorporated is photodynamic therapy, because if you think about what it's doing to the overall process, we can really see some significant reduction in tumor burden over the long run. And these are some chemo prevention you know, ideas that were, that were strategized, looking at every eight weeks for two years. There was reduction of squamous cell you know, at one year and two years in those endpoints. There's other uh, options for doing it every two weeks for a year, which is, which is a little bit more aggressive. Some have really talked about doing it, you know, uh, do, doing two treatments one week apart and then doing that three months later. So again, it's really what, what patients can tolerate, but you know, the bigger question is, are they using blue light versus red? Now, red light is, is a deeper penetrating light, and the other issue with that is we use it for, for acne because of its impact and depth on the sebaceous lobules, but it really doesn't have a significant role unless you have a very deep, aggressive dermal tumor. And the other problem that we now face is that medvixia or the, the mal or methyl amino levulanate is not available in the United States. So really, we're, we're left with blue light because, for one, it's a little bit more efficacious in, in skin cancer, but also because that's what's left to be available. But these are some photos of Medvixia looking at you know, patients with transplants. You see a lot of activity through here and then one month later. But 
I like, I like this study that uh, was done by um, <clears throat> Dr. Willie in, in Sacramento, where what she did was basically every other month treating those patients for two years and looking at their, their squamous cell risk, and that was reduced almost up to 95%. So this is a strategy that I think we should really think about in transplant patients or anyone who's high risk, because we can use it on their arms and hands, use it on their scalp and face, and we can even rotate therapies. And the best part is it's, it's very little headache as, as far as dealing with insurance. Now, just real quickly, I've, I've shown this at one of the meetings before, and this is an important study looking at you know, the, the role of, of field clearance and histological clearance. The reason I bring this up is because in transplant patients, again, we're more dealing with, this, with the AKs that are on their way rather than what we see in front of us. And you think about this whole concept of treating the field, and all of this has been beaten to death, you know, my, by myself included. But what you think about, too, is in terms of, is there a, a strategy where we can start thinking in terms of prevention or treatment over maybe a week, you know, one week of, uh, of a month here, or maybe one day a week? Is there going to be a role for some of that as far as reducing tumor burden, as well as thinking about reduction of, of conversion to squamous cell? Because that's really our, our, our main impact. Now again, a couple different trial, uh, chemopreventive agents are in trials. There's a lot of activity. You know, genistine is really not thought of much more, and a couple of the other ones have, have actually been taken off the market. So I think we're we're really left with systemic retinoids. Low-fat diet, however, is something that we can incorporate, and uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows if you if we can reduce the fat content of diet, there actually is a little bit more promotion of antigen uh, presentation, a lot of better, lot lot better immune surveillance. And this is a study that they looked at 175 patients. They were randomized through here, and both groups are, have been looked at as far as how much the impact of changing their diet will affect their, their amount of skin cancer. So we'll, we'll see where that comes in. All right, so I know that was a lot of stuff, and I'll be happy to take any, any questions. I'll either be here or around. I'm here till about 6. And uh, I know that's a lot of information. I hope, uh, the handout, I think, will be a good reference tool for all of you guys. And uh, it's always fun to come to Atlanta because you, you see a lot of drunks on the plane, which is very interesting. And, uh, and uh, if you ever get strapped down, I think that'll be a, that'll be a good highlight. So uh, thank you guys very much, and uh, be happy to have any questions.